About seven years ago, uh, my family and I moved into a new house. We didn't move into a new town. We just moved literally across the street, that is 446, one mile away. We moved from Gentry to Gentry East. It was a huge move. Um, it really was a huge move because moves always are huge. But you know, the thing that we love the most uh, about our location is, well, the house. Yes, and the family and all that other good stuff, but the backyard. Because our backyard looks out into a forest that goes for miles. Now, I like people and everything, but when I go home in the evening, it's nice to be able to look out the back window and not see a person anywhere, not see a car anywhere, maybe a deer or a squirrel, and that's it. It's beautiful. As a matter of fact, to retain the pristine beauty of that location when the developers moved in there, they de uh, made a, a decision to leave two very large trees in our backyard, tulip poplars, I think they're called. Both of them were large, but one was significantly larger than every other tree in the entire area. The only problem was, within the first year, I began to realize the tree was rotting. From the left-hand side, you could see this scar, apparently, that had uh, been placed there, maybe by a large uh, land-moving object. No matter, it, it was in decay. I did everything I could. I had it treated on the outside. I had it injected. Everything that the tree experts could do for me, I tried, but it just kept decaying. And before long, it was inevitable. The tree had to go. Uh, the tree, you see, is large enough this way and tall enough that if it fell in one of those really strong Indiana summer winds, it would literally crush our house. So we thought, house, tree. We chose the house. We had someone come uh, to take it down. That was an exercise in faith, just to watch all those huge limbs come down and land in the right place. It was a skilled surgery the guy did on this tree, and my wife happened to be home in the summer to watch it. It was quite an event. When the tree was cut down, I went out there just out of curiosity and decided I'd try to count those rings, you know. It was somewhere between 75 and 100. I kind of lost count. It was an old tree. It was a beautiful tree. We loved it, we grieved its loss. But when the guy came to cut the tree or give me an assessment, he says there's two prices. One's the tree removal, which was substantial enough, and the second is the stump removal. Why? Because he said, if you don't have the stump removed, you don't have to, but if you don't, something's gonna shoot up from the stump. Because that thing is live. Even though the tree might have been 100 feet tall, underneath in the stump is a living organism. And he said, things will start to grow up. I wanted another tree there, so I had him remove the stump. That story, my story, is exactly the opposite of the introduction to the story in Isaiah. Remember the passage read at the Advent candle? These words. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. That was hopeful. That was a promise. It was something the people of God who were in oppression in a foreign land hoped for. That out of the stump of their country, a tree would grow. The promise uh, is detailed. 
and the church looks back at it and sees something other than just a historical episode in the life of Israel, the church looks back at it and sees it as a promise of the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. So for that reason, it's one of the Advent texts that was read this morning in millions of churches all over the world. Because it reminds us that the prophecy of Isaiah has come true in Jesus Christ. The one the text says that the Spirit of the Lord will dwell on. It's Jesus Christ. Not only did the Spirit dwell in the person of Jesus Christ, but as the church came to understand, there was more to it than that. The very essence of who God is resides in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is God, the second person of the Trinity. The text also says this Messiah, he won't be normal. He won't judge like other judges judge. He won't just judge with his eyes. Or to put it another way, this judge, he won't judge for rewards or kickbacks. You know, if you're a judge in any situation, whether it's your profession or whether you're called to it in a social context, you can do your dead-level best to be absolutely objective, can't you? And you know full well that something clouds your judgment. Maybe it's the people. Maybe it's what you want in return for a good judgment. It could be any number of other things. But the passage says, under these circumstances, with this person, this judge will never judge that way. His judgment will be pure righteousness always. We just came through an election, right? Let me put it in this context. This judge, says Isaiah, will make judgments without regard to re-election because he doesn't care. He's that pure. He's that righteous. He'll not judge based on a reward. He won't judge based on a surface level. Part of his judgment will be protection for the poor, the needy, and the innocent, and the judgment or the punishment of the wicked. What all judges, we hope, are like. But more than that, this judge will do something that no other judge has been able to do, that no other judge will ever be able to do. He'll be the one and the only one who brings complete world peace. The words are recorded for us uh, here, the description that is. Here's what it'll look like when this judge comes. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. And the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. Imagine the image. Imagine anything so different than the reality that we know, that a lamb and a leopard will lay down beside each other, and that a child will lead a lion. 
He goes on, the cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of a cobra. And the young child put his, I insert the word, pudgy little hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I should interject, full of the knowledge of the Lord is not a phrase in Hebrew that meant understanding up here. To be full of the knowledge of the Lord meant to understand and to have absolute heart purity. The earth will be full, not just of the knowledge the way we think of it, but full of the knowledge, the heart purity of the Lord. This is what will happen when Messiah comes. Of course, there's a problem, isn't there? He came, and it hasn't happened. It already happened, but not yet. The beginning of the process was installed by Jesus Christ. The culmination of the process is something we look forward to, which is for why for 2,000 years the church has celebrated Advent, which is to look back and remember and to look forward and anticipate with hope that one day God will make everything new through the person of Jesus Christ. You know... Um, this is a really deep human story. Why? Because we all long for it. Every one of us, every created being is born with a longing in his or her heart for everything to be right. To be in perfect relationship with all God's creation and with God himself. But here's the challenge. In our search to satisfy these deep longings, we frequently miss it. We get off track. You know, it's even true that our sinful longings are a homing signal for God. Even the longings that take us in the wrong direction misplaced, misguided as they are, they're a deep longing for things to be the way they ought to be. They're a deep longing for internal satisfaction. And our problem, of course, is that, well, sometimes our longings just get twisted and misdirected. You know, kind of like a GPS that needs an update. We're just going the wrong way. We're chasing the wrong dream. We think we know where we're going, and the road is not taking us to the location we'd hoped for. That's one of the challenges. We frequently do that with our longings. Sometimes with our longings, and the journey's the same with everyone, sometimes we know the destination. We really do. But on the way to the destination, we get distracted. Remember the story, some of you may have read it years ago, A Pilgrim's Progress? where the main character, Christian, is on his way to the celestial city. It's a classic piece of literature. 
And one of the things about the story is this. This man called Christian on his way to the celestial city, he knows where he's going. He knows the destination. He knows what's in his heart, but he gets distracted and frequently goes the wrong way and makes a mess of things. I remember when my kids were growing up and uh, it was time for driver's ed training. Um, they never let their mother train them, by the way. Um, whenever they got their learner's permit, we kind of had an agreement that for the most part they would drive with me. Um, but no matter, whenever we decided to do this driver's ed training, we tried to reinforce the things that the driver's ed teachers said. And one of the things I remember them saying was this. Your car will rather automatically go in the direction of your eyes. If you're looking over here, you're going to veer off into that lane. And if you're looking over there, you'll go off the side of the road. And Lord knows what will happen if you're texting, right? You know the destination. You know the place you want to be. But you take your eyes off the road and you begin to drift. And that's so much a part of our reality, isn't it? We know that our longings can only be satisfied in God, but we get distracted. And sometimes along the way, quite literally, we think we found it. And sometimes it looks so good. Sometimes it looks so righteous. Sometimes our satisfaction level seems to be so high. And then we pass through the threshold of the door of this celestial castle, only to find out it's a facade. There's nothing behind it. We're in an empty house. And uh, there's something else that often happens. Sometimes in our pursuit of the goal in the proper direction, we just lose patience. And we try to create our own world of satisfaction. Like a child with Legos, we use every part imaginable to construct our own reality of satisfaction and happiness. Only to look at it later and realize, like the Legos, it's plastic. That's our inclination. Even though our inclination deep down within us is towards God, it goes in all kinds of different directions. We frequently go in a direction that's not God and we know it because of our sinful inclinations. And we find out that all those things that I've listed and more are really fool's gold. They're not true. So if we're waiting for this already not yet, if we're waiting for this ultimate satisfaction that comes in God and God alone, for the full peace that God's gonna bring to this world, how should we wait? I think first we need to wait faithfully. Now, before you assume what I mean, I don't mean faithfully in the traditional sense. I mean full of faith. We need to wait in such a way that we absolutely believe and reinforce in our thoughts and imagination that God is the only source of true happiness. We must have the faith to deeply believe this and to realign our life according to that reality that only God satisfies my different longings. 
You know what that's going to mean for us? If we live faithfully, it's going to mean we're a little odd sometimes. Because we so deeply believe, we're going to march to the beat of a different drummer. Our steps are not going to be aligned with everyone else's. And on occasion, people are just going to think we're weird. Because we're off tempo. We don't have a normal beat. We're full of faith. We need to wait faithfully. We also need to wait realistically. What I mean by that is we need to wait with a holy restlessness. We need to recognize that things aren't right. And they never will be right until God makes them right. And in that holy restlessness, we need to do everything we can to make the kingdom of God come and God's will to be done, as the Lord's Prayer says, on earth just as it is in heaven. We need to work with an energetic restlessness to bring about the kingdom of God because we know things are not right. That uh, holy restlessness, which is a realistic kind of waiting, must also include well, a realistic detachment. We must, my friends, as we wait, recognize that the things that we so often hold on to, people, places, things, even ideas, are not the thing that will bring it all full circle. If we grasp tightly those things, and don't live in a detached way from the world, we'll never find what we're looking for. If we live like this, we've got no chance. If we live like this, we have a better chance. We must live faithfully and realistically and, and humbly because quite frankly, our picture is always blurry. We can't see it completely. I mean, after all, Isaiah chapter 11 was a blurry image of something that was to come, and the people didn't know how it was going to come. And when Jesus came, some of them didn't identify him in Isaiah chapter 11. And still today, we look at the work of God through Christ in this world, and the image is blurry. We can't see it. We can't see the end. We can't even, on occasion, clearly see his plan. And we've got to humbly admit that we don't fully understand it. It's the flip side of an aggressive, faithful pursuit of the kingdom of God. You see, sometimes we faithfully and aggressively try to make sure that God's kingdom comes and his will is done on earth just as it is in heaven. And in the pursuit of God's kingdom, we mess it up. We do the wrong thing. We identify the wrong person. We align ourselves with the wrong cause. The history of our beautiful church is littered with illustrations of people whose heart were aligned to God and his purposes and they made dumb decisions that hurt other people. 
That's why we must live humbly, holding faithfully to God's promises, but humbly knowing that even when our hearts are right, we can mess it up. Wow. It might not sound hopeful, but that's a story of grace. Because God takes what we do, sometimes good and sometimes messed up, and accomplishes his will. We need to wait faithfully and realistically and humbly and patiently. There's a fine line between being aggressive concerning bringing in the kingdom of God and being passionate about God and God's world and being impatient, isn't there? Sometimes the most impatient people we know are those who have a righteous cause. And sometimes we, we know what God's going to do. He just said it. So impatiently we demand now, Lord, now. God never does things according to our timing. And we cannot demand of God how and when he does it. So we must wait patiently. And we must wait righteously. Oh, you'll never be perfect. You're looking at a perfect example of imperfection. But God calls us to wait righteously, to pursue him and his kingdom. In the words of Psalm 1, to be like the righteous one, that righteous man. That righteous man, he's not deterred. He keeps his face focused not neglecting God's commands. Finally, we wait expectantly. We wait expectantly because we believe deeply in our hearts that God is absolutely sovereign, that he will bring it to completion. So we hang on to that hope. We never let it go. We pursue God and we wait expectantly. Because the promise is, he will come again, and he'll make everything new, including you. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so grateful that uh, you're not finished with me. I'm really quite a mess. I follow, sometimes passionately, and at the same time, foolishly. I follow, Lord, and in my passion, I frequently think I'm almost inerrant, (laughs) and I make mistakes, and I mess things up. But, oh God, you have been so gracious to call me to follow you. And these people who are here this morning have heard that same call in one way or another. And you promise all of us, Lord, that you're going to complete the work that you began in us. Sometimes we're impatient and we don't see the end. Inevitably, we can't, but we know we can continue to trust. Remind us, Lord, as we follow you, And look back that you've always been sovereign. You've always designed things according to your will. And the story of your church points to that. And really, when we think 
about ourselves, the stories of our life point to that. We frequently rush after things that we think are either in our best interest or we even think are your design. And you put one roadblock after another in our path. And we get frustrated, Lord. We cry out to you and say, Lord, I just want to do your will. Lord, why can't this work out? And all the while, the sovereign God of the universe, the one that knows us inside and out, the one that knows the beginning from the end, is working out his will in our life. So, Lord, give us the grace to follow you, the faith to believe you. May we rejoice in what we know and anticipate what you will do. And we'll thank you for that. In the name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.